everyone. What's up? Welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. On this episode, we're going to talk about the ever-popular, the limited edition on Clear Wax, the one, the only, the Extended Play, or better known as the EP. Extended Play 45s were introduced by RCA Victor in 1952 to compete with the LP released by Columbia in 1948. They were originally vinyl records that could hold up to 7.5 minutes per side. In the early days, they were also a way to split an LP into two or three smaller 7-inch EPs. Later on, they became a way to compile several singles into one format. As time went on, EPs waned in popularity, but made a comeback in the 1970s when punk rock and the DIY subculture began. In the late 70s and 80s, EPs in heavy metal became increasingly popular as a way of releasing music for the independent and financially challenged artist. Today, Chris and I are going to talk to you about some notable EPs, and at the end, we'll give you our big four metal EPs. So sit back, relax, turn it up to 11, and let the debate begin. Chris, the metal EP, or the EP in general... Um, and this one, we're going to be talking about metal ones based on heavy metal. Um, there's there's a long history with with bands and and putting out EPs and stuff like that. What what what's your take on it? When I first heard of EPs, I really didn't know what they were. Um, you know, it was it was you know kind of foreign concept. Just said EP. I was buying them as CDs at the time because I was. I was, you know, really buying CDs in the early 2000s. Um, but they were still extended plays. And it really wasn't familiar with 45s. I kind of learned about those later. I remember my dad telling me about he had a bunch of Elvis 45s. Um, so I, the whole connection between that era and, you know, what my experience with EPs was, um, was a little bit different. So... For me, it was more of like these bands would release something kind of in between albums, kind of like to remind you, hey, we're still around. You know, um, here's some here's some new music. Sometimes with uh, live recordings or alternate versions of songs on them. So um, that was kind of my experience was with EPs. Was more of like a um, kind of interim thing between big albums. Yeah, I get that because. You know, that's really kind of one of the purposes that they used it for. And what's weird is you, you, you mentioned the fact that you were in the era of compact discs, obviously CDs. And I was at the, you know, in the era of vinyl cassettes. Uh, I was at the end of the eight track era. I, I had like two or three eight tracks in my life and never really cared for them much. Um, but the EP, you know, on vinyl specifically was, was something that was pretty popular. And when CDs came around, what was weird about that whole, uh, idea is that CDs were just CDs. It wasn't like you, you can make them smaller, but then later on they actually made like three inch CDs. So they made them, they, 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 they tried to make them look like they were the seven inch vinyl 45s. Right. So they were three inch CD singles that could only hold so much, you know, data on it. And I don't even know how long they were, they, they maxed out at, but they were definitely less than half of, a, of what a CD put out. 
You know but, what I hated about those CDs too is when you put them in a tray, they were so loud. Like you would. Oh put yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> if you had them in like a regular little portable CD player, it wasn't bad because it would latch in. But in those trays, you, you'd put them in and be like, you know? <laughs> yeah, because you had to put that. You had to put a little plastic thing around it instead of in the middle of it. Like on forty fives or seven inch singles, you know, when you had a record player that only had the single little. Um, pointy thing in the middle i don't even know what the hell it's called <laughs> um you had to use that adapter um mm-hmm. unless you had one of those round adapters that would go on top of that spindle the middle spindle thing and and put a and, and then you could put the 45 without an adapter on that because it was an adapter that was on the on the record player um so i had both but the c the cd single what was just dumb about the whole thing is that you record companies would put out a single on a on a regular cd and it's like you've got a 79 minute music cd that you've literally put five minutes worth of music on <laughs> it's, it's just it was just a weird concept you know and and they didn't really uh alter their their thinking um along the way record companies have notoriously shot themselves in the foot over over their their lifetime but you know for for the person out there who really doesn't understand what an ep is you know, the way I define an EP is, or an EP release, you know, from, from an artist, it's longer than a single, shorter than an album, you know, basic as, as it gets. And, you know, so you're going to hear us tonight and then, you know, you'll, whoever listens to other podcasts, because everybody pretty much listens to other podcasts, you'll hear those other commentators and personalities reference them. You know, you'll hear references to full length albums and then you'll hear EPs, you'll hear singles. And so that's why you hear the word full length because an EP is not full length. It's just a shorter version. So that's, that's where kind of where does a lot of this terminology comes from, but in the world of metal uh, and especially early on, it was, it was kind of used like a sales tool, you know, uh, you know, armored Sane, overkill and Def Leppard, uh, Rat, Queen's Rack, Merciful Fate, and Iron Maiden, all those bands independently released albums. And we're going to talk about a few of them tonight, but they put up the money themselves. They, they c- gathered the, the, the money or they had someone they knew spot them a thousand dollars or whatever it costs. And they went into a studio that, you know, in some cases they got, they did favors to get studio time so they wouldn't have to pay for it. You know, and they recorded an album and then, well, not even, not, not recorded an album. They just recorded whatever songs they had, uh, you know, that were, that was, you know, their own songs, you know, originals. And so some bands had four, some bands had five, some bands had two, some bands had three. And, you know, some bands like Iron Maiden had a whole bunch, but they just only recorded so many. And then they basically put it out on their, on a seven inch or a 12 inch, it's like a, an EP for the most part. Um, and handed them out at shows, sold them at shows, sent them out to record companies. And that is how a lot of those guys got signed in the first place. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's self-promotion in order to get, get your, uh, band name out there, some kind of recognition, and just having something that that a record company could listen to, right? Exactly. You know, and then in, in in a similar fashion, though, then it would be some 
artist that actually gets got signed um just because of their their a and r rep went to see one of their shows and said hey you know what we're gonna go ahead and sign you uh we're gonna give you couple thousand dollars put together a few songs we're going to release this out so we can prepare you guys for your full-length album you know so your name is pretty popular right now we want to keep that going we want to keep that buzz going so we're going to put out this ep while you work on your full-length album and that's pretty cool you know and some bands that did that were bands like you know celtic frost and lizzie borden and even soundgarden kind of did that uh, to some degree you know and then you know like you mentioned early, it was a way for bands to keep interest in between albums. And what's weird is when you think about it compared to now and then, right? They would do that. You, you'd have an album released in 1985, let's say, right? And they tour for six, seven months. And then it was time to go hit the studio. But sometimes during the tour, they were, they would record a song, uh, live on stage or, you know, or, you know, like in, in sound checks or, or somewhere in the, in the sound, you know, in the back room or whatever or on the tour bus. And when they get off tour, it was like, all right, we're going to take a break, but man, let's get this song out real quick. Or they would submit it to the record company and they would put out a small EP thinking about that, you know, before, the, before the next album come out and the next album would come out, you know, if they released it in April of, of 85, then the, the first album, you know, so let's say the next album would come out in like September of 86. Right. But in between that, they wanted to keep their name out there. Now think about that concept compared to today. You got bands today in, in metal and you know, let's just talk about some of our classic bands, Metallica, eight years in between albums, Iron Maiden, six, seven, eight years in between albums. Right now, the new Anthrax album that's supposed to come out later this year would be eight years since they released their 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 last full-length album. That's insane. I mean, you would have thought maybe they'd throw something out there and say, hey, hey, fans, have some, some music. You know, Metallica teased it a bunch of times. It never happened. Anthrax put out, you know, Kings in Scotland or something like that. They also put out the live album for their 40th anniversary. So I get that. You know, some that's what some bands did. They would put live albums out there. Mm-hmm. But this was this was you know the EP was a way to to put one or two songs and keep our name out there. You know, so and bands that did that were like you know King Diamond did that. Um, it's kind of like Metallica did that with the with the five ninety eight EP, which we will. We, probably mention later <laughs> you know that was you know Jason, alert. yeah jason's in the band right so let's go ahead and get him in the studio see what he's like you know shit like that um so anyhow without further ado let's get on with talking about some really notable eps <laughs> and, and before we get started just let me mention for anybody out there who's you know, after you get through this episode, you can go back to um, what I called at the time the interim episode. It was released in March of 20, March 27th, 2023, and it was me by myself um, because um, our our dear friend and my co-host Chris K was ill, and we needed uh, to put out a show. <laughs> so I took the mic for about I don't know, like 35, 40 minutes or something like that, and I talked about 
debut EPs from 80s metal bands. And so that episode included Lizzie Borden, Rat, Armored Saint, Celtic Frost, and Merciful Fate. So we might not talk about those tonight. But anyway, Chris, why don't you go ahead and give us your uh, your first one? Okay. Um, I think a good one to start off with is Opiate by Tool. Um, so I this was actually the first Tool album uh, that I owned. Uh, I had a sampler that had a bunch of uh, new metal and alternative metal and that kind of stuff that uh, that my local record store had given me. Uh, I've mentioned them a few times in the past. Diamond had records in Houston. Um, they're no longer around, but uh, at the time they were like the place to go for metal and they were doing some kind of promotion. They gave out two discs of um, uh, sampler and I, I had found a few bands from that, and the first Tool song that I had ever heard um, was something off of, uh, I think it was Sober, off of um, uh, Undertow. And so I went to the store looking for that album. I couldn't find it, and I did find Opiate, so I picked that up. And um, it was a really cool album. Um, <clears throat> obviously, like, still kind of in their early days and, and more kind of silly songs. And, you know, there was some stuff that was kind of more focused on like censorship, religion. Um, and then just, you know, like they had songs like jerk off and um, cold and ugly. I, I really liked hush. I, I, it's a six, you know, six song album. It was 26 minutes. Um, I mean, that was pretty solid for me at the time. Um, you know, couple song or a couple tracks were live, uh, "Cold and Ugly" and and "Jerk Off." Then there was "Opiate," the eight, uh, I think it was like eight and a half minutes, and there was a hidden song at the end. You know, starts at like the last six minutes of the of the album. Um, it was like it was really cool. Um, you know, it, it really got me into the band. And by the time I found uh, Undertow. Like that was that was like the perfect introduction because it gave like a lot of attitude. It was it was definitely more. I wouldn't say like punky, but it was it was more underground. I think than than some of the stuff that came later. And um, you know, if you're if you're new getting into like a band and kind of like transitioning f- from more like heavy metal, I thought this was a good like introduction to the band because you know some of the stuff that came later. Like lateralis, it's more. Um, what's what's the word I'm looking for here? It's kind of like kind of out there, you know, hippie-ish. Whereas this was more, you know, in the same kind of vein of my attitude at the time. I thought so. Good, good introduction to the band. Hey, you know, my my first introduction to Tool came on MTV, watching Sober um, on on the video on MTV. So. And that's how long, I mean, shit, they start different, you know, opiate that we came out with 91, 90 o- opiate was 92, 92. And then sober was 94, I think, or undertow Undertow was 93, yeah. 93. So, I mean, that was still MTV was still relatively a thing back then. I mean, I was and, pretty young. Yeah. I, I want to say I, I would have had to have been about 10 years old. I was not driving. At, the, mm. at that time, yeah. So it's it's pretty wild when you th- when you th- when I think about it because it was like Tool doesn't seem like one of those bands that's been around for that long because they only have what five 
full length albums. And it's kind of like, that's a, that's not a lot, but they've been around for, you know, fucking 30 years. <laughs> it's nuts. So, yeah, I mean, they had a pretty long hiatus. Um, yeah. But, but you know, from uh, like 92 to 2001 was really their, their heyday. Right. And then 10,000 days came out five years later. There was kind of that gap in between there too. Right. So, like 10 years of solid like production and then you know a little bit of more spaced out and then a pretty long gap it was like 13 years before the next album so yeah that was that was pretty wild um but yeah i i i like tool and i listen to opiate today in fact and um it's it's definitely exactly how you described it where there's there's a lot of youthfulness to it but exactly. you can you can you can hear in those songs some of the stuff that would come later and, and it just their, their sound while it, it was still technically primitive, it, it was the tool sound that you would, you know, eventually become, you know, familiar with on, you know, on albums like lateralis, uh, and, um, 10,000 days. So it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting, um, how that album is so all over the place, but yet very kind of it's tool, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a bit heavier than pretty much anything they, else they put out. So, like, each album to me became progressively less heavy, but not, like, in a bad way. You, they became more mature over time. Right, exactly. All right, so for me, you know, um, the choices that I make tonight are going to be predominantly more classic bands, um, and that's just who I am. Um, but I'm, I am going to try and, and talk about a couple of, of newer EPs, but my first one is going to be Anthrax, uh, Armed and Dangerous. It came out in 1985. This was the EP that introduced Joey Belladonna to the metal world. Uh, it also introduced Frank Bello, but it wasn't as much of a, that wasn't as much of a thing because Frank Bello played toward the end of the tour because Dan Looker got thrown off, um, and, and was fired. Um, so there were some shows that Frankie had already played, but, um, Joey was kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of hired out of the blue. And, um, so they brought him into the recording studio and they, they sang these songs. I mean, put it this way, Joey was not a metalhead, <laughs> you know, uh, realistically, he's not a metalhead. I think he, I think he kind of morphed into that over the years and, you know, became a big do fan and, and stuff like that but realistically he's you know he sings in a journey cover band you know so that's the kind of guy he is i mean there's nothing wrong with that at all but it's 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 very unique and at the time in 1985 when you know there was no such thing as posers in metal um it was just weird that he got the gig um so that was his first appearance um it introduced two new songs um armed and dangerous and um, the song Panic. Now, the funny thing was, is if you look at the LP on the back, it says, or not the LP, but the, the artwork on the EP, um, it says uh, new studio or studio track, studio track. And then it has a little asterisk that says um, previews of, of new new songs from their new their upcoming album or something like that. And Panic never made it on to spreading the disease. And it also had a cover of God Save the Queen and some live tracks, which was a pretty cool five-song EP. Um, and it really was a very cool, and I personally, you know, to 
to throw this out there, this version of Armed and Dangerous to me is better than the one that's on spreading the disease. And for years, since that time up until probably last year, my understanding was that those was two different recordings. Last year, I read something where that is actually a remix of what's on spreading the disease. And I'm shocked if it is, because to me, they sound like two different songs. Hmm. I mean, the same song, but they sound like two completely different recordings. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm not, I'm not buying it that it's the same recording remix because to me, there's just not a lot of similarities, but I could be wrong because to me, the one on on armed on the EP sounds a hundred times better than what came out on spreading the disease. But, you know, I didn't produce that one. <laughs> so, no. uh, that, that, that's what that is. What do you got next? Okay. Um, I guess let's talk about uh, the Iron Maiden, the Soundhouse, the Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, the Soundhouse tapes. Um, it was released in 1979. It's a three-track EP that has Iron Maiden, Invasion, and Prowler. Um, this was, you know the first release from Iron Maiden. It's a bit rougher in sound than like what they would release on their, their actual albums. But I think it's, it's a really nice snapshot of the time because this is, you know, the lineup of Paul Diano, Dave Murray, Paul Cairns on guitar, although he's uncredited, uh, Steve Harris on bass guitar and, uh, Doug Sampson on drug drums. So kind of a drugs. (laughs) 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 we're probably all on drugs but uh yeah i mean there was only five thousand copies of it released it's i mean it's pretty valuable if you do have a copy uh there's been uh, a copy sold for 1750 euros on auctions so i mean that's pretty crazy um you know this was kind of like coming out of the the punk rock peak and I mean, if you if you've seen or if you lived in during the time, like you know, this was when Iron Maiden was really like gaining a lot of steam. People were going to the shows, bringing you know dummy guitars that they could air guitar along with and play. Like this was that era of like you know the the inception of this band, and you know just just ha- kind of having that that. Um, history behind it and its importance kind of in the um, the scene of metal, um, you know, and not really being widely distributed. At least now you can find all this stuff, which, I mean, think about it at the time. Like, imagine you had a copy when, you know, this was at its peak. But, like, now you can get a digital copy and listen to this stuff. So it's such a different world than it used to be. It's crazy. It, it is, you know. I, it's funny you say it that way. Cause you know, when I, you know, when I get into a band and they have a history, right? So I got into Iron Maiden, they were already three years, three years into their, well, they were more than three years into their history, but into their recording history, they were already three years into it. Um, get into Metallica. They already released two albums. Mm-hmm. Get into Megadeth, they already released their debut album. And so you go back and you want to catch all this stuff, right? And 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 this stuff is available, but you hear about, like, for instance, the Rat EP that came out. 
when rat became popular, they reissued it with a different back cover, same front cover. So, you know, it was still readily available and you could still get the original one. And it wasn't like you were getting it for, you know, Oh, it's a collector's item. It's on eBay. That shit no. didn't exist. Yeah. Right. So you would buy it. Okay. So if it, if it originally went for five bucks, you're getting it for maybe $10 or $7 or whatever it is, right? The, 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 the reissue is, you know, six ninety nine or whatever. But the funny thing, like with, with the, the soundhouse tapes, that's one of those where it's like, all right, so there's 5,000 issued. It was, it's very similar to Motley Crue's too fast for love. You know, they put it out themselves. They sold a, a thousand copies and that was it. It's never, never to be seen again. Right. However, Motley Crue reissued the, the, the vinyl and stuff like that. Iron Maiden has never reissued or even attempted to issue the Soundhouse tapes. Other than they featured two songs, I believe it's two songs, on the Best of the Beast CDs. It was a double disc compilation. And the, I believe it's four LPs. It's either three or four LP version of Beast of best of the beast and it included all four songs and when i say four because the, the release only had three but there were four songs recorded at the sessions strange world which ended up on iron maiden was recorded at those sessions that were never released and it was yep. it came out on the best of the beast which is pretty cool so you can get it digitally right but you'll never get it as the soundhouse tapes the funny thing about the soundhouse tapes is i would not spend a dime on the soundhouse tapes today because you cannot prove to me that that was not made in, in someone's backyard. Okay. And if someone sits there and shows me a pristine copy of the soundhouse tapes, you're out of your fucking mind. I'm no way. I, I just don't believe it. I mean, it would be cool to have for sure. It would be cool to have item, but yeah, listening to it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a nice, you know, landmark of that time, right? Um, so one thing I did want to say about it before we move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, it received distribution at, like because of it receiving play from a DJ named Neil K. So, right. so you know, basically impressed with the demo, like wanted to play it so. The, to you know help the game the the band really gain recognition and it it made Prowler reach number one on the Soundhouse charts, which is just crazy to think about. So like this, the Soundhouse tapes is really in a big way responsible for Iron Maiden becoming you know the as big of a band like not not responsible but like a a an important factor and them becoming as big of a band they did as they did because like a lot of, like we've gone over especially during the um the new album era like there was a lot of bands that, that put out some really cool stuff that never got anywhere because record companies really screwed them over and iron maiden's one of the really fortunate ones that you know beyond having great music they they also had a little bit of luck and and you know some good support behind them and and that's that's the really big key and and I'm going to talk about a new album band next but that is the big key you got to have good songs. That's the first, the first thing you have to have good songs, but you can't just have one good song. You can't really just have two good songs, but if you have two good songs, more than likely you're going to have a third good song. 
and and the way I, the reason I say it like that is because anybody can step on a pile of shit one day and come up with a, a really good song, okay? And have that that's the day of their life, and they they make this great song. But if you have to create that over and over and over over again, then then if you're good at it, obviously you you become rich and famous. If you're not good at it, then you get one hit wonder and you retire. Um, so, um, Iron Maiden, so that's, that's what set Iron Maiden apart. I mean, no one is more motivated than Steve Harris. And he said, I'm going to, he's going to make it or he's going to die trying. And so Iron Maiden was, I mean, they were special from the start and they were, they set themselves ahead of the pack with the way that they did things. And then once they got Rod Smallwood as their manager, it was over for everybody. I mean, the fact that Rod Smallwood's still their manager to this day is, is pretty amazing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, when you said that he was, he's nobody's more ma- motivated than him. I, I probably believe that. <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't even think that other five guys in his band is as motivated as he is when yeah. it comes to, when it comes to Iron Maiden. But I mean, they're all pretty motivated, but I mean, this guy is the, living breathing epitome of what it is to be iron maiden and that's great i love it you know good for him (laughs) all right so speaking of another new album band and one that had a tremendous amount of talent that kind of left the new album uh scene behind def leppard released the def leppard ep in 1979 um this is their debut release again done independently on uh their own record label and when you listen to those those songs i mean the first two songs on the album are totally new album riding to the sun and get your rocks off especially get your rocks off um here's what's set to me after listening to this and i i really gave this a good listen to the other day the song the overture um the first two minutes are kind of like a, an acoustic kind of passage with Joe Elliott singing. To me, if you listen to that, that sounds like something that they wrote on Hysteria or on Armageddon or even, you know, as early as, say, maybe Pyromania. It sounds really good up until the point where the, the rest of the band starts. Then you can, you can tell it's low budget, but it's pretty clear. And the it just his singing sounds so much more mature than it did on Riding to the Sun and Get Your Rocks Off. It sounds like the Joe Elliott that we know today, which is pretty impressive. You know, very similar to how Aerosmith doesn't sound like Aerosmith on the first album. It wouldn't it wouldn't come until albums later that you heard Steven Tyler sound like the Steven Tyler that he is. This, the overture is pretty cool. So, I mean, the song itself is okay, but that first two minute intro is pretty awesome in, in, in showing, showcasing what they can do. And so that, that this EP was very significant for them in, in their history. And they, and they have re-released the songs very similar uh, to all the other bands who released their history, you know, digitally on some kind of box set, blah, blah, blah type of thing. You know, have you listened to it? I, I haven't. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, get your rocks off. I mean, it's all it they, that song is on their first album, On Through the Night, uh, mm-hmm. Riding to the Sun. Pretty cool song. It's it's uh, it's a it's a 
slower song than get your rocks off, but it's a, it's a good song. It's a good rock song, you know? And then, like I said, overture, the first two minutes are the best part for me. And then it turns into a new album song straight up. <laughs> so I'll have to give it a listen. I, I will. And actually they feature overture on, on, um, on, uh, on through the night as well. The one that didn't make it was, uh, right into the sun, which is kind of weird. So, but yeah, give it a listen when you get a chance. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's very, like I said, very new album sounding, but you can tell that there's, there's talent there. All right. All right. So what's your, what's up? What's up next for you? Um, so I'm going to mention one, uh, kind of briefly. Um, so there's a, there was a very brief project and unfortunately it's never come back around. Um, but it was called Pyrithian. Uh, this was Tim Lambesis' last project before uh, he ended up going to prison. Um, so, you know, there's there's a negative connotation to that, but I am a believer in, you know, people, you know, turning their life around and, and you know, kind of coming back from bad things. So um, I'm not going to dwell on that, but I do want to talk about the album because or it, it's a three-song EP. It came out in 2013. It's called The Burden of Sorrow. And it is extremely heavy and has really awesome songs. Um, the first track, The Invention of Hatred, I absolutely love. It is one of those that uh, it just, like, if you are working out, put that on. It's going to be, you know, an awesome track to listen to. Uh, then there's Bleed Out and Rest in the Arms of Paralyzed Beast. Um, I love both of those tracks. I wish that, uh, you know, he would do more with it. Uh, basically, he teamed up with members of Elegion and The Famine, and uh, they put this out in 2013. I, I said the last thing. There was also Triple Brutal, which he was working on with uh, Austrian Death Machine, if you're familiar with them. It's, but that's more of like a joke kind of album. Like, the Austrian Death Machine, they're, they're really cool riffs, but, you know, he's doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression through parts of the album and stuff like that, so... You know, uh, I really wasn't kind of thinking that of that as like a serious thing. But um, yeah, definitely check out uh, Pyrithian if you get a chance. Um, you can find it in digital format. It's kind of buried, unfortunately, because of, you know, the, the circumstances of the time. And it never really got like a lot of play. But it's freaking awesome. And it's, it's one of those hidden gems you should definitely check out. I, I believe... You had mentioned uh, Pyrethian before, and I listened to one of their songs, um, but it was a long time ago. It was like in the middle of like year two that we were doing the show. Yeah, it's it's been a minute since I in, I, I brought it up, but I do I do always kind of want to bring it up because it is so good and it is so underappreciated. But did you know that Austrian Death Machine is back? I did know that actually, yeah. You did, yeah. So they dropped a video that was inspired by the Terminator, and they're releasing their first album in over a decade. Yeah, that was, that was. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love Austrian Death Machine. It's a lot of fun, but that was not the project I wanted to come back. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, I like I said, I've heard uh, one. I just don't remember. I mean, dude, it's been like two and a half years. We probably talked about it the last time. Yeah. So I listened to it back then. I probably thought it was cool. I just <laughs> don't remember. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on to my next one. It's Queensryche with the Queensryche EP, the first uh, 
release by Queen's Reagan. Again, that's independent release, independently released, excuse me, um, to the point where Jeff Taint wasn't even officially in the band yet. Um, they The band had uh, a different singer. He quit, I think, or fired or whatever. And they asked him to, to sing on the project because they were release, you know, recording these songs. He did. It came out great. He decided to stick with the band. And, you know, good thing that he did. But um, as you all know, I mean, if, he, if anybody out there follows Queensryche, this is, you know, you put the, you know, put it this way, if you're listening to it on vinyl, you put the needle down and you see this, you hear this buildup of the first song on the, on the record called Queen of the Reich. It's enough said. You, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That song is awesome. And I mean, if you're a Queensryche fan out there, you know this song is just, this is, I mean, it's called Queen of the Reich. It is the, the namesake of the band, right? And over the years, Jeff began to play it less and less, sing it less and less, and not even sing it with the enthusiasm that it deserves. So much so that when he was fired and Todd Latore, and this is actually before he was fired, when Todd Latore hooked up with the guys in Queensryche, to make the band called rising West because they were on a break from Queensryche and they wanted something to do and they needed some money to, 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 you know, uh, to make, you know, to pay, make ends meet. They put together rising West and they had been recommended the singer named Todd Latore. He hooked, he, he basically gelled. I think he met Michael Wilton at a NAM show. They gelled, came out, they did the show and the first song they did, was Queen of the Reich. And that dude pulled it off so well. It was it was over for Jeff Tate at that point. <laughs> and and it's one of the songs I still play and I love it. Every time I hear it, it's just amazing. The fact that they could still play it. And because Todd can sing like Jeff and he can sing those notes that Jeff can't sing anymore or can't hit anymore. Um, it's just great to hear that song. I love that album. Um, it also features Knight Rider, it features the Lady Wore Black. Um, and then it also contains a song blinded on it. So, I mean, all four songs are really pretty cool. I mean, lady wore black really liked that song. It, it's, it's a ballad before ballads were a thing. You know, it was, it's kind of like, it's like a, almost like what you consider like a progressive power ballad. You know, it's like I said, it's, it's not supposed to be a sweet love song. But it's it's definitely slow and moody, and then picks up and it slows back down. Really, really cool song. Like I said, ballad ballad before it, ballads were a thing in metal, um, but it was still very very cool song. I love that release. Yeah, it's really cool, and it's it's a lot. I would say more metal than some of the stuff that would come, like as in like just heavy metal. Uh, the, the the stuff that came later obviously introduced a lot more progressive elements. So if you're not as into progressive metal, but you just like the, the typical heavy metal, it's a it's it's a really strong release that I think like even non-progressive fans could get into. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's still there's still some progressiveness to it. Of but course, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's much less. It's you know, it's very, it's it's more straightforward than the rest of their stuff. Yeah, like Queen of the Reich itself is like just an awesome heavy song. Oh, jeez. Don't, don't even get me started. <laughs> All right. What's next for you? 
Um, well, let's talk about an early uh, extreme metal release. Uh, uh, you said you mentioned uh, Celtic Frost last time, uh, but let's talk about Tom Warrior's band before that, which was uh, Hellhammer uh, with Apocalyptic Raids. Uh, this was released in 1984. There was a re-release in 1990 with a couple more tracks on it. Uh, but the main one we're going to talk about is the original, um, Apoc Apocalyptic Raids. You know, it's, it's kind of a rough listen, you know, based on the, you know, the, the equipment used at the time. But again, it's like a, it's like a perfect snapshot of that time period. Um, you know, it basically took elements of bands like Black Sabbath and, uh, you know, bands that came around at, uh, like after that and you know uh, a lot of the speed metal that was coming out and and so kind of combined like thrash black metal sound um you know before really black metal was a thing um but some of that early like venom and and black sabbath and stuff like that's made a really heavy moody just awesome sounding album um you know and then this band just evaporated you know um you know tom warrior did end up making uh celtic frost just a couple years later uh but you know this this is kind of like the only legacy of hellhammer and uh, you know it's four awesome tracks the uh third of the storms uh evoke damnation that's uh then massacre which when i was a kid and i saw it i thought it was mascara but uh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> they had to use mascara for their corpse paint. Um, but uh, Triumph of Death and Horus Aggressor, um, really awesome stuff. Uh, for me, like being, you know, pretty young when I got into extreme metal, um, this was one of the ones that I didn't have a copy of, but I had a burned copy of that from a friend. Uh, just could not find music back then the same way. And, you know, you had to do what you had to do sometimes to get a copy of things. And so I did find this eventually and had it in my collection. Um, you know, again, from my, my local record store, I think I paid a bit of a premium to get a copy of this. But, um, you know, very cool. I, I had the 90, 1990 re-release. Um, I did not have the original, but I would love to because it's, it's also one of those that, like, it would be such a cool piece on the wall too, like if if you have the the vinyl because it's an awesome album cover. Yeah. <laughs> Which album cover are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean? I thought they I, I there I thought there was one that was censored. That's why. Uh yeah, there's it's it's uh it's a little inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> a little. <laughs> um, I remember this. Um. Well, after the fact, um, I was already into Celtic Frost. I had heard about Hellhammer, never really heard it or saw it until I worked at the record store in 1990. I think it came in the Apocalypse Rage import came in in 91, and I quickly grabbed it, recorded it, listened to it, thought it was pretty cool. Um, it's, it's definitely the inspiration to black metal. I mean, that's how bad it sounds. It's, it's one of them for sure. Like it, yeah. if you're talking about Venom, you got to talk about Hellhammer as well. Yeah. And, and, and it was funny cause we, you know, on, on last, the last episode we did where we were talking about the 10, you know, the, the 10 most important bands in, in the history of metal. I mean, and I put down, uh, was it Venom and Celtic Frost together or something like that? Mm -hmm. Um, 
Really, it should have been more like Venom and Hellhammer because, um, or Venom and Tom and Tom Warrior or Tom Fisher because it it, it was his vision with Hellhammer, and then it, you know the Hellhammer was getting such bad reviews, and people did not like them for whatever reason. That's that's the reason why yeah, they ended up. It's got a one over ten in the collector's guide to heavy metal, like, <laughs> but I don't see why. I, other than it was just shocking at the time. Right. You know, and shocking and it sounded like crap and you know, it's all that stuff. And it but was one- sounding like crap took off. Oh, I get that, <laughs> that part of the world. Like, Hey, this is cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And no, and, and there's nothing, you know, you're, you're gonna, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you like, you know, but they had bad criticism for years for this album and what ended up happening was when when tom made celtic frost that bad criticism followed followed along uh and people were lumping celtic frost with hellhammer even though there are similarities but the songwriting was much better and the recordings were drastically better yeah but you know uh yeah so if you want to put the LP on your, your wall, you're more than welcome to. You're just going to get some funny looks from people. <laughs> from the from the dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to mention uh, kind of along those lines. Not really. Overkill. And their first uh, EP, their first release. Again, independently released. Four song album. Uh, it was their debut. Just the overkill is a big black cover with the bright green overkill on the, on the top. Uh, it had, it featured the songs rotten to the core overkill fatal if swallowed and, uh, the song, the answer, um, all the songs except for the answer. So three out of the four songs would reappear later on, uh, different recordings where it was rotten to the core and overkill would appear on the first overkill album. Uh, uh, what the hell is it called? Um, feel the fire. Feel the fire. Jesus Christ. My, where's my head today? Uh, and then fatal of swallow would appear on taking over. I mean, the, the songs are mm, produced. Okay. They're, they're, they're demos essentially. And, and it's, but it's, it, it, there's such a, a, an energy about these songs and it's really cool. And that, that all these albums that we're talking about, there's an, the reason why these bands got signed, Iron Maiden, you know, Queensryche, uh, Overkill, all these bands, you know, they're still around today. And you hear and you hear these early recordings and you understand why the energy that's just comes out of those records are, is amazing. And this is no different. And it's just you just to see the the early years of these bands is, is pretty impressive this album is pretty cool uh i really like rotten to the core the the, the version that's on um feel of fire is much better sounding um even though feel the fire pretty much itself was also a rough recording you know in general compared to what taking over and, and future albums would sound like um but I mean, these are these are really good songs um so the ep would be later reissued as part of bonus tracks to a reissued fuck you EP. <laughs> now the fuck you EP was, um, was pretty cool. I had never seen anything like that when it came out and I'm like, I have to have this. 
And part of the reason why was because you saw a record in the record bin in 1985 that was covered in a plastic garbage bag. Or actually, <laughs> excuse me, 1987. And when I say plastic garbage bag, it was a thick black, like hefty bag that was that was heat sealed around the album. And the reason why was because the album's name is Fuck You. Or the EP's name is Fuck You. And it, ha- it features a big middle finger. It kind of kind of greasy looking too. <laughs> but a big middle finger in the front. And when you listen to you know, you buy it, you listen to it, the song is pretty good. Um, contains some samples at the end because in 1987, that was a thing to do was to throw samples on your, on your songs, sort of like, uh, anthrax is on the man. So when they reissued the EP, uh, for fuck you, they, they changed the name to fuck you. And then some it was reissued in 1997. The then some was additional live tracks along with the overkill EP. Uh, and listening to it today, I almost feel like they recorded it off the record. I don't, hmm. I'm, I don't think the digital copy is off the master tapes unless what I have recorded is from a download that I got that someone recorded the record, but noticing that the track said seven, eight, nine, ten, or something like that, uh, that was the original, the EP release when, for fuck you. And then some, uh, was to see nine, 10, 11, 12. So I don't know. I could have done something weird or something like that, but my version, it sounded like it was a record. I heard pops. I heard, you know, not skips, but you heard record pops and I'm like listening to it on my, my phone. So I know it's, it's, uh, something with the recording, but anyway, it was pretty cool. I've got to check it out more. Um, if you get a chance to, to buy fuck you and then some, you'll get the full out the, the full EP on there. Okay. Have you heard it? Um, you know, I've heard the overkill EP, like the original version. I, I don't know if I've ever heard the, you know, the, the fuck you and then some version of it. Um, I might have when we were doing some research. Uh, you I know, mean, it's the same thing. It's just, yeah. You know. But yeah, with the, I don't, I mean, I've never heard like the live tracks or anything like that. Mm, right. So, okay. Um, well, yeah, I, I've heard it when we were doing uh, an overkill episode earlier. So cool. That's a band that it's interesting to me because I'm, I'm much more of a fan of their later career than their early career. It's just, you know, so you, you're so, more of a fan of the stuff now, right? Yeah. See, which I, I is actually, funny because the stuff now to me is much more similar and closer to the stuff back then. It's that middle period. Oh, um, agreed for sure. It's just the, the sound quality. Oh, and yeah, I, like, I, I like the riffs of, of the modern day too. Like, don't get me wrong the the, the like when we've seen them live, um, they're, they sound great with the older tracks it's just you know the the recordings themselves that aren't very good. It's it, you know it's harder to get into when you weren't there, right? Gotcha. All right, what do you got next? All right, um, so I'm gonna go over Children of Bottom. 
the they had the trashed lost and strung out ep in 2004 i remember this one very well because i did find it again at my local uh, record store i was so excited about it because it had uh, a cover of bed of nails from alice cooper which is one of the few alice cooper songs i actually know very well um but i had heard that the single um and a uh online clip uh before getting it and so and you know this was one of my favorite bands of all time so obviously any release was exciting to me at the time um but i did have the ep version i thought i had the single um but i had the ep version because i had the one with knuckle duster which funny enough they they pulled that song off the cp and re-recorded it for the last album that they released so even if you didn't hear it on the cp a newer version of it was used on the the final album because alexi had not heard it in a while and when he heard it they were kind of going over some old material he was like man that's a cool song we should use that and then one of the other band members was like we did use it we had it on the ep but <laughs> so it's kind of funny um and then it had a cover of She is Beautiful from Andrew WQA. Um, I'm, I'm not as familiar with his stuff, um, but, you know, because he's really more of like part of uh, the party rock scene, um, you know, but uh, I would say like that was a really cool cover. And then it had some videos on it back when that was a big thing, like you put the CD in your computer and watch a really low quality video of of the stuff but uh one thing that was cool was it had um like a night out with the band and they were like all over the city and in helsinki and it was just you know like when you're a fan of, the, of a band like and you don't really have the opportunity to see them live and do stuff like any of that kind of stuff that just makes you feel closer to them like for me at the time in 2004 i thought it was awesome I still like stuff like that when you get yeah. to when you get to see bands outside of their element. Yeah, just kind of hanging out. Like uh-huh. I think they I think they were like sn- uh, sledding and stuff like that, and it was kind of cool. Yeah, that, that that stuff is always cool. I, I like that stuff. Um, I even like the lo-fi uh, videos that you can get on the back of a CD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I for one have not heard this. Um, it's one that I, I want to listen to. I, I have it available to listen to. So I have, I just haven't done it yet. Well, I um, think everything here is re-released on something or other, you know, because there's right. the, co- there's the covers and like I said, knuckle dusters on the, the last album and then trust lost and strung out is on the, the, uh, was it on, are you dead yet? Yeah. Yeah. It was on, are you dead yet? So, you know, it's, it, it was more of like a really cool thing at the time, but I'm pretty sure everything else, everything on it has been re-released in some capacity. Cool. Very good. All right. Um, so for me, uh, my next one, I'm going to talk about, let's see here. There's a couple of cool things here. One that stands out to me the most, and, and I didn't, and then this will be real quick too. I didn't do, we, I, I didn't choose anything, and we, and you and I talked about this. Anything that was just fully live, like there are plenty of live EPs out there, just kind of like to throw something out there for the fans. But the one that really stands out to me the most is one from Ozzy, came out in 1981, and it's called Ozzy Live EP, and it is available. 
it, it almost, I think some people called it like a, a, a Mr. Crowley single, but I have the one that's called the live, the Ozzy live EP. And, and what it is, is it has three songs, uh, has Mr. Crowley and suicide solution live. Uh, suicide solution, uh, plays all the way up until it gets to the Randy, uh, the Randy Rose guitar solo. And then it fades out. But what makes this album really unique and really a collector's item is it has a song called you said it all that is ne- has never been recorded by Ozzy on any album. This came out because, um, they were on tour they were pretty. They were getting popular, and the record label wanted some new music. So the band was going to do what eventually would become Blizzard. Uh, not Blizzard. Uh, over, um, Jesus Christ, Diary of a Madman. But they were still on tour, and they didn't want to pull them off tour. So um, the band said, "Well, we have this song, and and it was a Brandy song, and they they played it. They record. They literally rehearsed it at a sound check and recorded it that night or the next night, something like that." And that's the only recording that exists of that song. Mm. So that's what makes it really special. And so I think it's pretty cool. So I had it on a, on a regular vinyl, um, has a picture of Ozzy on the front and it says live EP. And then a friend of mine who was in the business in, uh, he was also in, in the record stores, but he was, uh, he worked for a distributor before he worked at the store. And I went to his house one day for something and we were looking through his collection and he had a picture disc version of this album. And I'm like, dude, let me get that. And he goes, no. And I, you know, I, I knew he wasn't going to give it to me. So I was just kind of like, oh man, I go, what do you want for it? And he was like, I'm not going to sell it. Well, uh, probably a year or so later um, for like my birthday or for something or for his birthday, he was just deciding to feel generous. He brought it in and gave it to me. So I have it. Uh, pretty cool thing. Um, I, he, he has since passed away. Um, and so I always, I always, uh, point to the sky when, when I think about that, because that was a pretty cool gift that he gave me and that I always enjoy. Yeah, so that's, that's a nice story. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if, uh, if you ever get a, I don't even know if they've released it on any of the box sets or anything like that. I really don't remember. I, I would have thought that maybe, um, that, the Aussie camp would have put this out, but I guess because they're trying to limit the amount of, uh, music is out there by Lee Kerslake and, and, uh, Bob Daisley. It is not on any of the anniversary reissues of the first two albums. But anyway, if you ever get it, it's pretty cool. It's out there. What do you got? Maybe, maybe someday when Karen passes away, we'll get all the good music again. When Sharon, so I don't know if you ever read, read this recently, but if Sharon passes away, or no, if so, if one of the two of them become incapacitated, they uh-huh. have a suicide pact that they would they have they would go to some place and then they would basically be put to sleep. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, they've already talked to the kids about it, so it's a really weird, interesting thing. <laughs> I guess they're going to Canada. Uh, it's somewhere in Europe. Yeah. So who knows? Fun. <laughs> All right. Next. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm going to talk about In Flames in a, a, a trio of EPs, uh, starting with Subterranean. Uh, so In Flames, uh, 
it was really more of a project when when the band started. Um, there was kind of a a little bit of a revolving lineup. Um, basically, it was a project for Dr- Jesper Stromblad. Um, he ended up becoming the rhythm guitarist for the band, but on their first album, he was the drummer. Um, and he wrote all the music, and he probably, you know, was... This was more of like just a, a, a uh, attempt for him to work with other musicians and that kind of stuff. Um, but then uh, he released uh, Subterranean in 1995, and uh, really more of the the band's uh, future lineup was in place by this point. Uh, Johan Larsson was on bass. Jesper Schromblad moved over to rhythm guitar. Uh, Glenn Lungstrom was lead guitar. And Henke Force was the uh, lead lead vocals. Um, so, and he actually uh, had various drummers: uh, Daniel Erlinson, uh, who's known for playing with Arch Enemy, and uh, Anders Jivarp uh, from Dark Tranquility. Um, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of these names. You can feel free to correct me. I'll be happy to learn. Um, but um, you know, I've been a fan of all of these bands and. I listened to Subterranean actually yesterday and I had forgotten how much I love this EP. Um, you know, uh, songs like Stand Ablaze, that, the title track Subterranean, I love the instrumental Biosphere, I'm sorry, Timeless, that leads into Biosphere, Biosphere being my favorite track on the album. Um, I had forgotten how much I love this EP. I used to listen to it all the time when I was in high school. Um, I ended kind of like shifted more over to the Clayman era of the band, and I really haven't listened to this heavily in maybe even in its like entirety um, in years. And I'm glad I did. I mean, it was it was a great experience. You know, it's 20 minute EP. Uh, some of the songs are about four or five minutes long. That, like I said, there's an instrumental on there. It's about one minute. I'm sorry, uh, one minute and 46 seconds. So it's, you know, a nice little lead into the last track. And um, if you get the 2003 reissue, it's got Dead and Eternity, The Inborn Lifeless, Eye of the Beholder, and Rooters in the, uh, Mur- Rooters, Murders in the Room Morgue. Um, now, what's interesting about those is Eye of the Beholder, um, that, that's a weird cover to me. That's a Metallica song for those of you who don't immediately recognize it um it's got clean vocals and this was kind of before uh really anything else that they did it was it was from some kind of uh metallica tribute album um and then murders of the room org was uh the one of the first ones i I believe with anders frieden on it who became and is currently their singer so um it's a really cool ep i i you know i'm not really Talking much about the the reissue, but the original version, I'm a huge fan of. Um, and then Black Ash Inheritance, uh, that was from 1997. It was the second EP they released, and it was after they did the Jester Race, which is one of my favorite albums with the band. Um, basically, they had a song uh, "Glass Disarm Their Davids." Um, it fits right along and feels like like a, an extra track from uh, the Jester Race. Uh, they've got Gyroscope, which is a kind of a preliminary version of the song that would occur on their next album, Horacle. So it's a different version of that song. If you listen to them next to each other, you can definitely see some some distinct uh, 
aspects of each version. Um, there's acoustic melody, which is uh, a melody of, or I'm sorry, a medley of Artifacts of the Black Rain, uh, Dead Eternity, and Jotun, which Jotun was from um, Horacle. So kind of this was this was a lot of ideas that they were coming up with in between the two albums, and you can see like how one led into the other. And then uh, a uh, live version of Behind Space, which they've, I mean, Behind Space is, is on like four or five different albums from In Flames. They really pushed that song in their early career. It's a great track. Um, I, I'm, I'm just always so curious why like that track, though, appears on so many things. It's on the original album. It's on uh, Black Ash Inheritance. It's a there's a re-release version of it on Colony, like a re-recorded version of it. Um, it just they just kept trying to get it over, like a like a wrestler. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the last EP that I'm going to mention is Trigger. Um, now Trigger came out in the time when I was kind of losing interest in In Flames because I wasn't as big of a fan of Reroute to Remain. Um, you know, that was kind of a d- disappointing album for me because it was coming right off of Clayman, you know, two years later. And, um, you know, it was it was a drastic difference in sound. Um, you know, I didn't like the recording quality very much. Um, you know, Trigger was used in Freddy vs. Jason, so this was kind of like a, a promotion to kind of go on that. Um, it was a shorter version of the the main track or the track that was on the album. Um, they had "Watch Them Feed," which I thought was was a pretty cool track as a, as a, as an extra one that didn't make it onto any album. And then a cover of Genesis's uh, "Land of Confusion," which I actually do really like that version of it. And uh, "Cloud Connected," which I was never a fan of that song. They did a club remix, which is just absolutely terrible. And then "Moon Shield" from. Uh, the Jester Race, they did a C64 soundboard uh, karaoke version, which uh weird, but they, they've done a few soundboard uh, versions of songs since, like MIDI kind of style tracks. So something they've kind of continued doing over the years. But um, anyway, t- for me, for a while, Trigger was kind of like the bookend for my time listening to in flames i did end up uh liking some of the stuff that did come a bit later um but i remember at the time thinking okay i guess i'm kind of done with in flames um and i felt felt a bit sad at the time um but what was so this this to me is one of also one of those moments like uh we mentioned earlier where a band would release an album, then an EP, then an album, then an EP. And it was kind of like to keep the interest, but it was also because they were trying to break into the U S scene, uh, from, you know, Gothenburg, Sweden. So it, you know, each individual release was gaining them a little bit more, uh, notoriety. And, um, yeah, it was just like, for me, each release was just super exciting. And uh, it just made the band even more like tangible and exciting for me because it was it was somebody from outside the country and it was it was like not it was you know obviously like Iron Maiden is from Europe and Judas Priest is from Europe but this was like when when the when the Gothenburg scene was kind of making its way into the U.S. for me it was like it was almost like getting a 
imported video game or something. Like it was just this kind of forbidden material that like I was like, nobody else knows about this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's like uh, how a lot of kids felt with uh, the new wave of British heavy metal when stuff came mm-hmm. out. Yeah. So that was kind of like my new wave of British heavy metal moment, you know? That's cool. I mean, I, I for the longest time, I never knew anything about the this Gothenburg scene and the and the 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 movement of melodic death metal no clue whatsoever i was i guess i was embroiled in new metal uh, at the time and the new wave of yeah, american heavy metal and metalcore uh, which i i didn't really adopt there was some of it you know when i when i went to ozfest and I, I picked up on some of those bands which i believe in flames played at ozfest and i may have seen them <laughs> when they were there but it was just like for me i was kind of sticking to all the bands that i knew and and my my wife and i who was my girlfriend at the time although we went to the shows and we listened to a lot of these bands in in reality when you go to these festivals unless you're unless you know the bands it's extremely hard to recognize and and say oh yeah this song is different than this song is different than this song because one they're all heavy they're all fast and they're all screaming you <laughs> can see that yeah but here's the funny part i i can completely contradict myself with this statement the reason being is hate breed was one of the bands that i, I saw and for whatever reason the song live for this sticks out in my mind to this day that is pretty much the only song that I listened to from hate breed. Cause I just never got into them, but I love that song and I, I can recognize a song anywhere I go and listen to it and, or, or, and hear it. It's just pretty weird. And that song, for whatever reason, when I was at Ozfest stuck out and I'm like, that's a cool song, but it also may have been cause it was the last song under set and they had the entire place cheering, you know, screaming live for this. So that might have something to do with it. <laughs> Could be. All right. So you mentioned the trilogy of EPs. I'm going to talk about a, uh, a trilogy of EPs or what was supposed to be a trilogy of EPs. Um, Stone Sour. And I'll, I'm going to refer to this as the Burbank EPs. Um, they released two EPs um, that uh, were supposed to be a third. Um, or there was supposed to be a trilogy of them. And so they ended up not releasing this the third one and i don't know why but it would have been cool had they done that because it was the whole premise behind these were cover songs which is pretty cool but um it ended up not getting released uh back in 2015 they released an ep called meanwhile in burbank uh so all the all the titles had some sort of connotation to something in pop culture and so this one was Meanwhile in Burbank, and they did um, five cover songs. We Die Young from Alice in Chains, Heading Out to the Highway from Priest, Love Gun from Kiss, Creeping Death from Metallica, and Children of the Grave from Black Sabbath. These are all well-known songs from those bands, and Stone Sour went ahead and did a really, really solid version of each of those songs, and to the point where I listen to them on, on like a covers playlist all the time, and I think they're really, really good uh, songs. Then they released their second EP later in 2015 called Straight Out of Burbank, you know, playing off the title Straight Out of Compton. Uh, 
which contained another five cover songs. Uh, Sailing On from Bad Brains, Running Free from Iron Maiden, Gimme Shelter featuring Lizzie Hale, um, the Rolling Stones cover, Too Fast for Love from Molly Crew, and then Seasons in the Abyss from Slayer. Again, very cool versions, all popular songs. So it's pretty wild that they did this. And then the third one was supposed to be called No Sleep Till Burbank, which is taking off from the Beastie Boys title, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. And that was supposed to feature songs from uh, or a song from Van Halen, Rage Against the Machine, Violent Femmes, and ACDC. I don't know what the fifth song was supposed to be. I don't know what the song titles were supposed to be, but those were the bands that they were supposed to cover. And rumor has it that they were doing Unchained from Van Halen. So that would have been cool. Um, Didn't but, they? Do, they did an Unchained cover from well, Van Halen. It, did they? Yeah, but it never came out on on the EPs. Um, it may have been a B side. Yeah, let me look into that real quick. Oh, it came out on the Japanese edition of Hydrograd. Hydrograd, yeah. It's it's if you haven't heard it, it's it's pretty cool. Actually, if you look at the the deluxe edition of Hydrograd, it has song from Rage Against the Machine. Soundgarden on it. So that may have been the other one that they were supposed to do. So maybe rather than release it as uh an EP, they they maybe the record company said you can't you like we can't support that. You're gonna have to put it on like a bonus track or something. That's a possibility. I mean, so yeah, so the Van Halen cover does exist as like I said, the Japanese bonus track. It was also on the deluxe edition of Hydrograd. Um Bomb track from Rage Against the Machine is on there, and Outshine from Soundgarden. Um, so they don't the the Violent Femmes song and the ACDC song does not appear on here. So those songs may or may never may have not been recorded, but who knows? Anyway, that was I thought those were pretty cool EPs. I mean, it's very seldom that you get a big big band. You know, I say big band. Stone Sour is pretty popular. You don't get a band like that that does relatively popular cover songs of popular bands, you know? Yeah. And so that's, and and then put them all together in the same thing. So, you know, you might get one song and then you get like four or five other songs that are relatively unknown, you know? And it's like, okay, like sort of like what happened with, 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 um, Metallica's cover stuff. Like they, they have all these songs and they throw whiskey in a jar for Garage Inc. And Wishing a Jar is pretty popular, you know, and, and uh, from Thin Lizzy. And also um, the song Turn the Page from Bob Seeger is, however, it's a popular song from Bob. It's not popular in the metal scene. So, you know, it was one of those things where uh, Thin Lizzy and Whiskey in a Jar, that was, you know, a Thin Lizzy song. So people were kind of familiar with it in the rock scene. But this these two EPs from Stone Sour are pretty cool because of the, the popularity of the of the artists that that chose. You know who has one of the most wild um, covers albums is Children of Bottom, with their their uh, was it Skeletons in the Closet. So they have a bunch of metal songs on there, but they also have like Britney Spears and Billy Idol and uh, <laughs> Andrew WK. Like I said, Pat Benatar. It's like there's some wild stuff on there. It's really good. Yeah, that that, that's kind of stuff I like. You know, where bands are not themselves, 
that's that's the, the well they're the themselves but they're putting themselves out of their comfort zone oh yeah i mean look at it that way yeah yeah i mean like they can take a poison song like talk dirty to me and make it like metal you know metal, right. metal. not not like you know hair metal <laughs> <laughs> all right so what's your last one for tonight uh so i'm gonna go over two eps by allison chains uh you're probably familiar with them uh sap and jar of flies uh, and uh, you specifically are definitely familiar with them, um, but our fans, I mean. Um, so uh, Sap was the first one in 1992, and I really love this this EP. I think over time I've really gained more and more appreciation for it. Um, you know, Brother Got Me Wrong, Right Turn, and uh, Am I Inside are, are really great, like kind of acoustic tracks. They've got some elements of you know, electric in there here and there, but, uh, they're really good tracks. And then love song obviously is just a lot of fun, uh, more of, you know, kind of silliness. Um, but, uh, got me wrong, I think is, is just absolutely great. And then right turn is my favorite track on, on that one. And that one actually features, uh, Mark arm and Chris Cornell, uh, on, on vocals as well. And then Ann Wilson does, uh, vocals Ann Wilson of, uh, uh heart heart fame there we go um does vocals on brother and am i inside so um that's a really cool ep it's not quite as 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 uh well known i guess or impactful as jar of of jar of flies it was more of kind of like in between facelift and dirt you know um let's see uh sap was february 4th 1992 and then dirt was september 29th 1992 so one of those kind of like you know bringing attention to the band and you can see like some of the maturity kind of start to come out and immaturity kind of start to come out at the same time on sap um but then jar of flies came out in 1994 um this was you know basically the band just kind of like getting together and and you know playing some some stuff and you know really feeling themselves out again but also it ended up becoming a really stellar album um it is about 10 minutes longer than sap it has seven tracks on it so it's longer than most uh, uh slayer albums and uh <laughs> it's so it's got rotten apple which is really cool opener um nutshell uh i stay away no excuses, whale and wasp, don't follow and swing on this. No excuses and don't follow are the first songs that Jerry Cantrell recorded as lead vocalist. Uh, this is also the first album with Mike Inez, who replaced Mike Starr. Uh, so you know a little bit of a change in in the flow of things, and obviously Mike Starr was the first member of the band to leave. Um, you know, not necessarily under his own uh, choice, but. You know, yes and no, if you really think about it. Um, but I absolutely love Jar of Flies as my favorite Alice in Chains song on it, uh, Nutshell. I love Don't Follow, No Excuses, just absolute classic. I Stay Away's excellent. Um, and Mike Inez really made his his impression here because he, he was uh, credited as a songwriter on uh, Rotten Apple, Nutshell, I stay away and swing on this. So, um, you know, really good first outing for him as well as just being an absolutely great album. I love this album. I love, I, I have the CD 
and it has fake flies in the spine of the CD. It's it, the first batch that came out had you, you had a, an assorted amount that would come with f- plastic flies on the spine of the CD. It's pretty cool. Um, and then later on I got vinyl and the vinyl version comes with sap. It's combined and it's two, two discs. So sap, the four songs are on one, like side a, and then side two and three are the songs from uh, jar of flies. And then side four is an etching of their logo. And it's pretty, pretty freaking cool. I mean, that's, mm, that is cool. And that's, that's back from, I want to say the mid nineties. Um, so it was after, obviously after jar of flies came out, but it was after, um, kind of after the hype went down from the album, but, uh, I bought, I, I saw the vinyl. I'm like, Oh, this is pretty cool. And bought it. So I have it. And now, um, the 30th anniversary issue of the albums, uh, of the albums coming out and they've got all sorts of different versions coming out now with vinyl. Um, they got a, they got a vinyl pressing that has flies in it. I don't know. I hope those are not real flies, <laughs> but it, they got flies in it. Um, and then they had the, uh, colored vinyls coming out as well. So that's pretty cool. If you get, if you were able to pre-order it the other day, um, you got lucky cause they sold out really quick. So I, I can't say enough about this. I love acoustic albums like this. And and that's something that's really, I I love when bands go outside of their normal comfort zone to do something different. Uh, Godsmack put out an acoustic EP as well back in the day. Um, Love that album as well. But I'm going to talk about one last album here. uh, One last band. And um, you may have heard of them. They're, they're, uh, they're a little band from San Francisco. Um, called Metallica, and yes, I have to mention Metallica every ep- episode. So sorry. <laughs> um, they put out an EP. Now, not a lot of people know about this EP. <clears throat> some do, some don't. It's called the Whiplash EP, and in reality, it is a overblown jump in the fire single. That's all it is. Um, it has a different cover. It does not have um, the the um, Cthulhu monster in the front. It actually has James and it's kind of like a, a staggered version of the same picture, like three or four times on it. Um, it has four songs. So it has the same thing, jump in a fire. It has um, the seek and destroy and phantom Lord, which is now known as the live at the automat recordings. Um, but they are not live. They were actually studio recordings where they threw um, some live crowd noise over it. And uh, if you get the first box set, the Kill em All box set, you can get both versions, the live single version, and you can get the version without the, uh, the live crowd. So that's pretty cool. And then, of course, there was Whiplash. The whole reason why it's called the Whiplash EP, it was the Neck Brace Remix. And to this day, I really can't tell what the difference is other than at the end, I can hear a hi-hat count down the end of the song. That's the only difference I've noticed. Maybe hmm. there's some, maybe there's some differences in sonics. Uh, maybe there's some differences in the snare drum. But, I mean, there is differences. But it's not a remix that we know remixes to be today. Um, gotcha. It is very, very close to the original. There's some, like I said, very minute sonic differences, sonic qualities. Um, but, uh, you know, when you talk about 
when people remix albums, you can say, oh yeah, that you can definitely tell the difference. This is not one of those that you can tell the difference too well. So that's pretty cool. Okay. All right. Well, that kind of wraps up our show. Uh, for for as far as the EPs are concerned, there are so many EPs out there from so many different bands that we didn't even touch on. We may do a, a second episode on this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, touching real quick on the Alice in Chains. Um, Alice in Chains released, and they, they re-released this uh, last year at Record Store Day, I think it was, or in 2023. It may have been 23, may have been 22, or Black Friday, at one of those. It was... Allison Chains, We Die Young, it was originally a promo only. And that's another thing that we didn't talk about at the beginning where record companies have this thing where they're they're able to release material that is eventually going to come out from the from the band. They can they they can take a song from the upcoming album or maybe a couple songs. Maybe they'll have a B-side that was recorded from the studio that that is not going on the album, so they'll put it on this. Uh, uh, EP and they'll put out a promotional one. It's for free. They send it to the record um, uh, stores or they'll send it to the radio stations to promote the future single or to promote the band in general. And so that's what happened with Alice in Chains. They, they, they released a song, We Die Young, as a promotional EP and it had some songs off of the, um, the Facelift album. I believe there's one song that's not on Facelift or it's a different version or, or it's a live version or something like that, but it was pretty cool. They re-released it on record store day a few years ago. It's pretty neat. Um, ACDC put jailbreak out. They re-released some, some of the stuff that wasn't available early on. There's so many out there um, that it's, it would take us four or five hours to go through everything. So we will probably do another episode on this sometime later this year, but now it's time for our big four. All right, so my big four metal EPs go like this. Number four for me, Twisted Sister Rough Cuts. It was the debut release from Twisted Sister on their brand new um, record label that that they were signed to, Secret Records. So secret, they went belly up later that year after they released their first album. (laughs) So uh, Rough Cuts was pretty cool. It had um, What You Don't Know Sure Can Hurt You. Uh, Under the Blade, Shoot Them Down, and a cover of the song Leader to Pack. All four songs would eventually um, make its way to um, later releases. Three of them, uh, What You Don't Know, Under the Blade, and Shoot Them Down were featured on the Under the Blade album, and then Leader to Pack was later re-recorded for the Come Out and Play album. Really, really like that uh, EP. Awesome. Um, number three for me, I mentioned it a little bit ago. It's called, uh, the other side from Godsmack. Love that EP. It is one of the best sounding EPs out there. It's acoustic. It's amazing. They've got a couple of new songs and then they have a couple of, uh, acoustic versions of some of their songs, but then they, they, uh, they put a song, I believe it's a song called awake. They turned it into a sleep and it's just a completely reimagined version of that song, Awake, which is a pretty amazing song in general. But to think of it as a as a uh, an acoustic song is pretty wild. And that's my number three. Number two for me is Alice in Chains' Jar of Flies. We just talked about that. Love that record. Love the, the, the recording, the audio, the sonics are amazing. Mike Inez's influence was all over that record. And the... 
because he influenced the record, he also stood out with his bass playing on that. It was really, really well recorded, so you could hear everything very clearly. So that's an awesome, awesome EP. And then number one for me, we didn't talk about it, and it's amazing that we didn't, but it is, for me, hands down, one of the most popular EPs to ever come out. It is Metallica's The 598 EP, which was all covers of bands, most bands that most American kids didn't know about except for the Misfits. And it really turned a lot of people on to some really good metal. And uh, there's not a lot I can say about that. I mean, everyone knows about the 598 EP or the 998 CD back in the day. Um, they re-released it on Black and Records a few years ago. Um, and it's uh, it's out there in the wild again. Very cool. All right. So what are your big four? Well, so... My number four is ACDC 74 Jailbreak. Uh, so for me, I remember when I, I picked this up, I was really kind of learning about the differences between ACDC's uh, U.S. releases and, uh, you know, the Australian or other versions of it that were out. And, um, you know, I was, I was looking to kind of complete the original versions of the albums um, because, you know, in, in the digital era or the early, early days of the digital era, you know, you could get certain things, but it was still kind of hard to find. Um, and I had, I didn't realize what 74 jailbreak was for the longest time. And, uh, I really loved the song jailbreak. Um, and I remember just listening to, and you know, it's not a very long, uh, you know, track listing there, but, but it's, you know, five tracks that you couldn't get elsewhere at the time. And I loved You Ain't Got a Hold on Me, um, Baby Please Don't Go, and Jailbreak. I liked the other two tracks, Show Business and Soul Stripper as well. Um, but those were, you know, my favorites for, from the album, those, those three. Um, but it was like, it was like, you know, finding a hidden gem, you know, even though people know knew about it way before I did. But for me, it was like, you know, I remember finding it and just being so excited about it and, you know, even even though it's probably not as as landmark as other stuff, you know, part of it for me is the nostalgia factor and you know what happened at the time. You know, me finding it and you know finding music was always kind of like hit or miss back then. So, um, and then my number three, I mentioned it earlier, and part of it again is that excitement at the time. Children of Bottoms, Crashed, Lost, and Strung Out. Um, you know, I was probably way more excited about this than most people were, but. Um, you know, I really like the track Knuckle Duster and I'm glad they, they brought it back around for that last album. Um, but also just, like I said, the videos that were on it, it was like super cool, you know, made me feel like a little bit more attachment to the band as well. I remember the first, the first album also that I had, um, I got a re-release of it that had, uh, a video of Dead Night Warrior. And so like having those, those videos attached on I, on the cds to me was like this very like niche and nostalgic time for cd releases and and i th think this kind of like rehashed some of that excitement for me um and then number two is in flame subterranean like i said earlier like absolutely love this album um you know i, I love the vocals it was the only one that hank did and um 
you know, I thought he was like, he sounded great within Flames. I love that lineup. I, I, I always really liked Glenn Lundstrom's uh, guitar work. Um, you know, Johan Larson was there early in, in, in the band. And like, for me, like, when things started changing, it's always kind of weird. Like, and now it's it's more easy to find information of it. But like back then, you're like, why did they leave the band? Why did these why did things change? And there was this kind of mystery behind it all. And so, you know, I I was always so intrigued with the, with band lineup changes. And I think maybe that drove me to be interested in Black Sabbath. Uh, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> But uh, my number one, I think you had as number two, is uh, Alice in Chains, Jar of Flies. Uh, like I said, absolutely love that album. Um, it's got my favorite Alice in Chains song on it. And uh, just such a nice change of pace, you know. Like the, I love the heavier stuff. Still, my favorite album of theirs is Dirt. Uh, but this is number two for me. And um, yeah, just really love that album. Awesome. 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 I, I really, that I'm a big fan of that jar of flies album. I really am. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our big four metal EPs. And that brings a close to this episode of debating metal. Remember, you can listen to us just about every week on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to see us grow, tell your friends about us and let them like, or subscribe as well, because we know you have. So, let them know about us. They won't be disappointed. And don't forget, you can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and our new X slash Twitter account at debating MTL pod, or send us an email to debating at gmail.com. YouTube viewers click subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when we post a new episode. And remember tune into the next episode where we'll spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya.